Hello and welcome to the Baseball Wisconsin Podcast. I am your host, Tim Gotzler. Now, today's episode takes us into the second inning of Game 4, where we sit down with Jerry Weinstein. Now, for anybody who's following, um, you know, baseball coaches clinics, if it's nationally or throughout the region or even throughout the world, and especially if you are active on social media, you know who Jerry is. Okay, I mean, this is... This is a big get, and I just got to share a quick story. You know, uh, a month ago or so, we're down in Chicago for the ABCA. I see Jerry from a distance. He's got his own small, you know, following, and people are trying to talk to him. I'm just going to stand in line, introduce myself, and know that uh, I'm going to give him. I'm going to ask him if he wants to be on the show. Explain to him what we're doing here in Wisconsin, kind of the, the, the purpose of the podcast, and he's also coming to speak at our state baseball coaches association clinic. Um, in Madison, Wisconsin, here in the middle of February. So he said he would be happy to help. We exchanged contact information, and I was able to get him on pretty quickly, which just blew me away with the amount of people that are asking for his time and the people he is, the, the, the circles that he runs in. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm very low on the totem pole. So I was very appreciative so much of him taking the time to do this episode today. Again, to go, even go through his resume, it wouldn't be, we don't have enough time. Even in the episode, we don't even talk about his background much because he's coached at every level for a long time and had a tremendous amount of success. So a guy like that, when you get an hour of his time, I just wanted to go right into the baseball. Let's go right in, dig in, and you're going to love today's episode. So without further ado, Jerry Weinstein. Hey, Jerry, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Look forward to talking to you guys. Well, uh, let's let's get started. Maybe just uh, baseball in Wisconsin. Um, we have a lot of uh, limitations. You know, we're, we're in gyms. We have limited time with our players. So, you know, put your Wisconsin baseball coach hat on for us. You know, how would you best maximize time um, with your players and some of the restraints that we have with weather? Well, I, I think one of the things uh, I'd really have a good relationship with those uh, those facilities where kids are working out and with those coaches so that everybody's on the same page that the kids are not getting uh, conflicting information. And, you know, we're all, this should be player centric. So we're trying to do the best thing we can for the players and then uh, being really organized uh, using, using social media, using uh, uh, the internet and, and not wasting time at practice uh, in terms of uh, organizing things that things are pretty much organized before you start. And then uh, uh, making sure that, Practice is competitive, and whether it's indoors or outdoors, getting it close to, as close to game complexity and game speed as possible, and uh, you know, just making the most of what you're doing. And again, preparation is the key for me. Well, I was hoping you'd go there on the practice planning side. You know, as the guys who follow you, I've been able to lucky enough to read your stuff and, and follow your content. Um, I just love the information you put out about practice planning, and I love kind of the, the Chip Kelly Oregon Ducks model. Um, so just kind of roll with some practice planning ideas, um, both indoor and outdoor, and how to get the best bang for your buck. Well, I, you know, uh, when Chip was at Oregon, that really intrigued me because he was so far ahead of the curve and he was pl- they were playing so fast that, that the other team was not ready for that. They weren't physically ready. They weren't uh, tactically ready to make those adjustments that, that fast. And that's what our game is, and that's what our game has been lacking uh, we practice at one speed and we play at another speed. Uh, typically, if you look at batting practice, <clears throat> maybe uh, as, as, as little as five, six years ago was basically old guys like me throwing balls at guys' bats and, at 60 miles or 70 miles an hour. And a good BP guy doesn't leave any balls in the cage and guys are launching balls in batting practice. And then the game comes and and uh, they get jammed twice and pop a ball up and punch out. And I they can't understand it because they felt so good in batting practice. And I think we're seeing less feel good batting practice. I thought <clears throat> the Giants last year had a really good term. They, they called it dirty practice, clean game. And what that meant that they were training at much higher speed, much higher complexity, that uh, not every pitch was a strike, not every pitch was a fastball. A lot of it was random. I'm not saying that you blow players up 100% of the time. There has to be some feel-good time and a time for them to just to get their eyes warmed up and get loose. But invariably, every team now is is practicing against the stopwatch, practicing. And, and it used to be, hey, 
uh, we're going to hit off the machine. Ah, man, I don't want to hit off the machine. It screws up my timing. Now everybody is hitting off the machine. And uh, I just think that, especially with the kind of machines where you can program a variability into it, or you guys using two machines or uh, changing speeds and stuff like that. And so uh, I think in that sense, you know, that's what I took from Chip Kelly. But I think that for sure that that has changed in our game dramatically. More and more guys are just hitting in the cage off the machine or off of a high-speed BP, coaches closer, and less T work, less underhand front toss, let's get it in their BP. And, uh, uh, and again, and again, it depends on where you are in your development. You know, if a guy's just learning how to hit, well, that stuff is important. You got to learn how to swing first, and then you got to learn how to hit. And uh, by the time you get to high school, certainly you're tool retooling and tooling your swing, but you also have to hit, and hitting means practicing as close to game situation as possible. Uh, that there's that that the game and the practice are not too far apart in terms of speed and complexity. Well, I appreciate you going there because that's one thing I think a lot of baseball coaches struggle with, right? We look at some of our other sports, if it's soccer or basketball or volleyball, you know, you can scrimmage, you can set up small scrimmages. You know, when you think about a baseball practice, it, it goes into this, this concept of block versus random practice. So when I bring up block and random practice, what does that make you think of in that, in that training environment? Well, block practice to me is setting the hack attack on – 65 miles an hour over the middle of the plate, pitch after pitch after pitch, and which is nowhere close to what the game is like in terms of speed or complexity because the ball is all over the place and there are different speeds and so on. Whereas random is unpredictable, chaotic. And that's, we try and create a, a high percentage of chaotic preparation work in practice for me. And again, you know, I'm just giving you my opinion. I, this is not a sermon from the mound. It's not etched in stone or anything. Yeah, but it's just an opinion based on many years of experience. Well, and that's why you're on here. We want to hear you speak about, um, you know, your experience. You have so much of it, you know, and, and you're coming to our clinic here in a few weeks. We're recording this at the end of January. You're going to drop so much gold on us. But one of the other questions that we struggle with in the baseball community is how do you individual individualize a practice in a team setting? You know, how do you coach the individual when you got – a team of 15 or a, you know, to a group of 30 and only a couple of coaches. So when you bring up that individual coaching inside of a team setting, um, you know, help us out there. Well, let's just take, well, let's just take batting practice. For example, I mean, every group doesn't have to hit uh, the same progression, uh, the same velocity, the same pitch, uh, changing the angle, changing uh, the speed, uh, changing it to more random and, and less uh, and less blocky. Uh, working on certain guys are working on particular things that uh, that they need to add to their toolkit. And I think you can individualize within the practice based on the skill set of the players. That goes the same for ground balls in terms of how hard you're hitting them, what the requirement is for catch and throw in terms of stopwatch. Uh, I think it, it really what it it lends itself to more early work and post work too to get the individual piece in place, uh, but. You know, when you're working in a in a team practice, and it's not team defense, uh, where you're working on a bunty or a first and third or cutoffs and relays or pickoffs or stuff like that, when you're working on some of the basic catch and throw skills or bat to ball skills, you've got to be creative and 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 you got to adapt your practices to the needs of the individual player. That, and with it, and I know you're a history teacher. You know, it's all about you know you have different students that learn at different levels and different uh, ways. And you have to adapt to their needs as learners. And that's the same thing uh, as a, a coach. It's no different than teaching history for me. Well, I love that analogy because, you know, a lot of us, you know, high school coaches, you know, we're teachers, we're coaches. It's, it's kind of that, that model. A lot of us are social studies guys or phi ed. Um, but I often think about, like, how we talk to our kids in the classroom. We individualize. But then sometimes, you know, I, I'm guilty of it, too. And you go out to the field and you know, you become a, a big tough guy or you become someone else on the field and you kind of take that learner hat off. So in your experience, you know, how do you make that transition maybe from the classroom to the ball field and still individualize the best you can? Well, I, I think relationships, I'm, I'm sure you have relationships with your history students that, you know, that, that, you know, that you want to make sure that they're dialed in and, and realize how important it is and, 
and you speak to them on an individual basis. I think communication and and developing that relationship uh, with your with your players, and then spending time in preparation. It's it's a lot easier to say, hey, everybody, put your bat on your shoulder, and we're going to hit from there, and we're going to go wide base, heel up and heel down. That's re- that's really easy, uh, but it takes time to really uh, analyze each individual player. But I, I think part of it is it becomes a collaborative effort too. It's not just me telling you what to do because basically the more you talk, the less they listen. And, and you, and for me, it's, it's me working with you to accomplish what you need to accomplish, but we do it together. And the more we have your buy-in and and eventually my job is to eliminate my job. My job is not to be your coach uh, forever. And I don't want codependent players. And so, you know, the best lessons are self-taught for me, but that can only happen when you're working with that student, whether it's before practice, whether you're exchanging texts or emails, hey, we need to work on, what do you think? Or, you know, evaluate your, and again, bringing the players into the evaluation process. I think that uh, uh, in general, players are really bad evaluators. They say there's, the truth is always in between three three people's uh, 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 opinion, uh, the kid, the coach, and their father or whoever. And so what you want to have is everybody basically seeing the same things and, and achieving the same goal. And the only way you can do that is to bring the player into the process for me and me, Hey, what do you need to do? Well, how are we going to do it? What do you think about this? Let's try this. It's not an exact science. We, you know, we're, we're spray gunning a little bit and some of it may stick, maybe not, but we're ultimately going to find what works best for you to make you the best version of you on a daily basis and uh and and going forward as well well you used a line in there that of many lines i think is fantastic but you talk about being their own best coach and at some point eliminating your role as a coach because we can't be out there we're not on the mound we're not on the bases we're not in the batter's boxes you know the back of our baseball card is done as coaches um but one line that I, I love that you use is coaches are guardrails so once you dig into that what when you say coaches are guardrails what does that mean well, ultimately, we're just trying to keep keep those guys from from driving off the side of the road, and you know, we just try and you know, I call it guided discovery. I don't do it all for them, but I try and lead them in the right way. And when they start to get a little bit uh, off the reservation, you know, I try and and throw a guardrail up there, put them back on, and and have them figure it out. And uh, it's it comes with failure when you when you fail. Uh, that's just another opportunity to get better. We, we, and I've used this term a lot that, that failure is fertilizer. And some guys don't use it. You know, when they, when they fail, they, they get gumby children and they, and they tune out and they, and you know, they get sad. And uh, that's, that's not the kind of guy we want as an athlete or a student in your history class, or as a citizen working in an important job uh, that we depend upon. Well, I want to stay in on coaching because, you know, your bio, we could spend a whole hour on your bio and I know you don't want to do that, but you've coached at so many levels at such a tremendous amount of success and you've been around some of the best coaches in the world. I'd love to dig in like what traits, what attributes to the best coaches you've been around? What do they have? Well, they, they really like what they're doing. They had a passion for, for uh, what they were doing. They liked working with young people. They like baseball. Uh, they like seeing, uh, people succeed, you know, they're facilitators and very organized and very even uh, low highs and high lows. They don't, you know, they don't go off the air cause they get irritated because things are not going well or, or, uh, you know, get, a, uh, euphoric when things are going well, you know, they're in that middle ground and, uh, they're consistent and and they're not they have a process it's no more about process than outcome and good processes on a daily basis so process oriented really consistent not not overly emotional but not uh underly emotional where you're flatline and then really organized and they really they care about their product they care about the kids they care about the team they care about the school and they really like what they're doing and and it's about where their feet are they're not doing it so they can go someplace else. It's not like this is one thing on my bucket list so I can build my resume to go to the next thing on my bucket list. 
Well, what about you? I mean, over the years, you know, you've had a tremendous amount of success in all the roles that you've been in. Like if you had to attribute your success to something, like what, what makes you a great coach? If you want to, if you're humble enough to say that, what, what, what attributes do you have that have led you to so much success within this game? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's one day at a time, you know, you, know, you have to choose to, to enjoy what you're doing and do the best you can do at the time in the moment. Uh, I'm not thinking about any future goals or anything else. It's just, if you like what you're doing and, and you're, you're willing to work at it, you know, I, we hear this term all the time. He's a grinder. He's a grinder, but I'm a grinder. You know, I worked, you know, I'm pretty, I'm not real smart and, and I don't have a lot of cylinders that I operate in, but the one cylinder that I operate in, I, I spend a lot of time uh, evaluating that and myself on a daily basis. And then uh, for me, continually trying to prove myself wrong. I'm always examining my paradigms. Uh, there's a good book out by Adam Grant. It's called Think Again. And I think it's really good. I think sometimes we get so set in our ways that, uh, that we lose ground. You know, you either get better, or you get worse. Uh, you never stay the same. And I think that, you know, I've always been a guy that's tried to raise the bar relative to players, expectations for players, but expectations for my team. And uh, whether we were last or first to try and get better on a daily basis. And uh, there's a Japanese uh, philosophy of life. It's called Kaizen improvements in small increments. And it's something that I try and do on a daily basis. Uh, I think I'm a big reader. I'm a big studier. I'm not afraid to change. I'm always looking for, for better ways to do things. And I think that uh, that book, think again, talks about that a lot. I think it's very good. Well, in addition to that, I mean, you're very active on social media, you're a reader, like what do you, besides think again, Adam Grant's work and some of the stuff you put out there, like what else are you working on right now, you know, in preparation for the season ahead in, in baseball in 2022, like what are you diving into right now as a learner? Uh, I just finished Rob Gray's book, learn how to move. And he's a perceptual, uh, uh, performance, uh, professor at Arizona State and really exceptionally good, exceptionally good book. And then I'm reading Steve Kerr's biography right now, uh, the coach of the, the Warriors. And, uh, and I read uh, Ryan Holiday's last book on courage that was very good as well. You know, I'm always reading something. And, uh, but th that's, I'm reading Steve Kerr's book right now. And I just finished Rob Gray's book and he's got a podcast too. He's, he's, He's a baseball guy, but he's a brilliant guy. And, you know, I do, I spend a lot of time talking to coaches and people and asking questions about things I want to know about, especially people who are successful. Uh, good friend of mine is Randy Sullivan down at the Florida Baseball Armory. He's a really sharp guy. And, and uh, I have a good friend, Turtle Thomas, uh, just wrote, did a series of uh, catching videos that are just coming out. They're going to be really good. And we talk a lot. And, you know, I talked to a lot of uh, big league catching coaches or minor league catching coordinators and the catching community is very, very close and, and they're really good about sharing information. Zan Barksdale runs a great clinic in uh, December in Nashville called CatcherCon and that's one of the best around and a lot of big league guys go there and we spend a lot of time talking, picking each other's brains and why do you do this and why are you doing that and I think that that I'm just a learner type guy. I, I'm one, the man with the most information wins. Love that. Well, if, I mean, if you use it wisely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you gave us a lot on the attributes of coaches and coaches at different levels and, and attributing your success, but you've also been around some of the best players ever play the game. So when you think about the attributes of the best players in the history of this game, um, what comes to mind? What, what attributes do they have? Well, they like, they like the game, number one. They like to play. They like to win. Uh, they like to be number one. They're extremely competitive. Uh, they they're able to have good, bad days. You know, they don't, have to, they don't have to feel good to play good. They've got an edge on them. They want to beat your butt on a daily basis. They want to be the best. No, there are no little things. Everything's important. They're really detail-oriented. Um, I mean, one guy comes to mind, Nolan Arenado, that I'm sure all your listeners – uh, or coaches and players in, in Wisconsin would be familiar with. I had him in, in uh, I didn't have him. He played on our team in, in Modesto and, and that's, he was a, 
that's that's him. Now you've been at a variety of different levels, you know, and like, what do you, what is the biggest separator between the levels? Is it mentality? You know, is it intangible things like that? Is it a physical skill? Is it a combination of both? Like what is the biggest separator between levels of players? Well, it's a combination at at every level, the game gets faster and the players are stronger at every level. And with that being, they become more consistent and the complexity increases and uh, it's just the, the speed of the game is one of the big things. And then, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like a, a mountain at the bottom of the mountain. It's real level. And that's little league. And everybody plays little league or most everybody plays little league or T-ball or something. Then then pony league, it starts to get a little bit steeper. And then high school, JV and high school and then maybe community college, college and professional baseball. And it really gets steep. And you, you and when you get near the top. It's really steep and there's only one way to go. There's no, well, there's an easy way to get to the top. Someone's just going to drop you on the top of the mountain. It ain't happening. You got to learn how to climb it. And it just gets more and more and more competitive because the players are better. They're more experienced. They're stronger. They're faster. It, it, the game changes. And, you know, by the time a guy gets to, let's say, you know, these Vietnam high school players that get to professional baseball, let's say a pitcher, you know, and that, that struck out 19 out of 21 and gave up two or three hits a game. Well, the 19 out of 21 that he struck out, they ain't there anymore. And the two and three guys that got hits off him every day in high school, they're there. And so you got to learn how, and they learn, you got to learn how to compete against a level playing field. And that's, and that's really important. Uh, some young players, they're really good when they know they're better than their, their opposition. When the playing field levels out, they're not very good. So they let the situation control them instead of them being in control of the situation. self There's no substitute for self-confidence, in my opinion. Well, we've, we've broken down coaches, players, but now you've also been on championship teams and you've won at a lot of different levels, been a part of those teams in some capacity. Like what, what attributes and traits do championship teams have? Well, one of the things, uh, uh, they, they take care of their business. They don't transfer blame. Uh, most of the teams that I've had, especially at the amateur level, let's say at Sacramento City College, we had tremendous internal competition <laughs> on a daily basis. Our, our practices were, were wars, I mean, every day. And we had, we had a lot of good players. Now, a lot of programs don't have the luxury of numbers like that, but, but out of quantity comes quality. And I didn't say that. That was Branch Rickey when he started the farm systems back in, in the forties with the Cardinals and then later with the Dodgers. And so that internal competition. So for me, I never cut anybody. And, and what I would encourage, I think that, you know, early on when I started coaching, uh, uh, there was a, a coach at, at Chapman college, uh, uh, Paul Deese, D E E C E. He was a great guy, really good coach. And that was a time when the division one, it was a division three school but they would play SC and UCLA and they would beat them regularly. He was a tremendous coach. And when I first started coaching, you know, I gravitated towards guys like that and Dato and I like to, can I come down and watch your practice? Wally Kincaid and blah, blah, blah. And one day I went out and saw Deese's practice and, you know, he came up and said, yeah, Weinstein, you think you can coach? I said, well, I'm I'm okay. He says, let me tell you something. He says, he says, winners recruit, losers coach. (laughs) That deflated me greatly, but that's true. The, the quality of the inmate in the institution is really important. So, uh, you know, I talked to maybe a little league group or a high school group and a little league coach. Well, how, you can't recruit in little league. I said, sure you can. You go out to those soccer games or you go out to those pop Warren football games or you get involved coaching and find out who the good athletes are and you, you develop a relationship with those kids and get them into, get them into your little league program or your high school coach. You check those PE classes out or you run, uh, pony league teams or whatever, where you have a feeder system and uh, again, developing that, that the quantity aspect. So there's, it's a competitive environment. I think that that's really important, but the really good teams and I had some exceptional teams. Uh, we had teams that lost one or two games out of 50 games at, at Sac city. We had, we had really good players. We had 28 big leaguers in 24 years, but uh, aside from really good ability, they wanted to win. They came to win on a daily basis. And they, 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 they weren't about 
they weren't necessarily bad guys, but it wasn't about, hey, well, let's keep it close, you know, and, you know, they wanted, they wanted to stomp on your, your, your windpipe and, and, and bludgeon you, you know, they just wanted to beat you as bad as they could beat you on, and it didn't happen all the time, obviously, but that was the attitude, and they didn't waste pitches, they didn't waste at bats, you know, they competed on every single pitch, and, 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 and when things went bad, they didn't, they didn't get sad. They just they got more competitive. I love that. Um, well, you know, when you come to the clinic here in a few weeks, in, in the middle of, of, of February, you get two sessions, one's uh, catching and one's on hitting. But, you know, you also put out a tremendous amount of content on pitching. And I just took a few notes um, that I kind of wanted to touch on on the pitching side. And, you know, a lot of us, obviously, as high school coaches, you know, we have varsity, JV, freshman teams. We got, you know, youth programs that feed it. We, you know, we're instrumental there. But um, pitching out of the stretch, starting young players pitching out of the stretch. So um, what are your thoughts there? Big, big believer. Uh, I think, and I'm not just young players, but if a guy, if a guy does not have a, well, number one, here was my, my thinking. I'm, I'm talking about college kids. When our first, when we start throwing live, whether it's a side or a flat grounds or whatever, it's out of the stretcher. I wanted to get him into a one-two leg. And in professional baseball, the standard is one-three, but that erodes into there's a lot of drift there. And the next thing you know, they're one-four. And when they throw breaking ball, they're one-five, and guys are walking around the bases. And we're, we're not turning double plays. Guys, guys are going first to third. They're scoring easily on contact plays and and advancing on bunts. So. Uh, so I wanted to get them to one, two. And one of the things, and we just called it a load and go. Some people called it a slide step, but we wanted to make sure there was a loading action. It was almost like a scissors action where one leg is moving back while the other one's moving forward. So we're torquing that pelvis. But by speeding up the delivery, it sped up the arm action. And pitching to your, to your capability is about arm speed. It's not about arm strength. It's not about gathering and stopping. It's about momentum. And I felt like I'd much rather get a guy going too fast and say, whoa, than giddy up. So that delivery tempo, and we were able, we found that by working out of the stretch with a one-two delivery tempo, as long as they were loading, as long as there was some loading action through the center of their body, that it really cleaned up arm action because that arm action had to catch up with the body. And some people say, well, you do that, you're going you're gonna to run away from your arm. And I found just the opposite. The arm was able to better sync up with the body and when the ball was released, the, the hand was going faster and we're about arm speed. Well, so, you know, that ties into syncing up the mechanics, you know, we, we one, two, one, two are better to home and, you know, controlling the running game at that aspect. But is there a part of pitching out of the stretch too, about, you know, the most important pitches of a game are thrown out of a stretch and, you know, is, is there, where's your thoughts on that? Well, it's kind of 50, 50 because, that leadoff hitter of every inning, that's, he's a pretty important guy. And if you, if you pitch out of the windup in the stretch, you're pitching out of the windup uh, 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 in, in, in a very important situation. Getting that leadoff hitter is really important. But also, yes, a lot of important pitches are made out of the stretch uh, in running situations, bunting situations, uh, uh, balls hit into the gap that you can control the, the primary and secondary lead contact plays, things like that. Uh, and, and again, especially in professional baseball with the, the trend now with all the high velocity is we're throwing more off-speed pitches than ever before. And the, there's a tenth of a second right there, the difference between fastball and, and off-speed pitch uh, in terms of uh, break time. And so, uh, uh, again, it, it, they're probably equally as valuable, but you're going to spend – in the big leagues, they, they spend right around 50%, maybe a little bit more time out of the stretch. But those first hitters of innings are important as well, out of the windup. Well, speaking of some data points um, that really helps sell a message, there's one data point that I've heard you say over and over, and it's you know 92.7% of first pitch strikes. So when I say that to you, what comes to mind? Well, what, I'm, what happens is uh, of, of all the pitches thrown, OO count, only 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 seven uh, percent of them, maybe eight percent of them are are hits, and so attacking OO is important. Now, if you look at just plain batting average, on base percentage, and slugging, it's on, somewhat on the high side. 
but a very high percentage of first pitch strikes are taken. And in, in general, getting strike one really enhances your chances of getting the hitter out. But also, uh, one of the things is uh, if you throw ball one, uh, it's about a 69% uh, of the time when a guy walks, there was ball one. And 70% of the time, strike one uh, uh, of, of the strikeouts, the first pitch was a strike. Now, I'm not saying that every every time you get strike one on them, you're going to strike them out 70% of the time. I'm not saying that. But we, especially in professional baseball, we're very sensitive to the, the balance between strikeouts and walks because the championship teams, if you just take one stat, just look at one stat, how many times do you walk as a hitter? How many times do you strike out? How many guys do you walk as a pitcher? And how many guys do you strike out? When that balance is on the positive side, you're probably going to be a playoff team and maybe a championship team. So that first pitch is, is really important because ultimately my goal, number one, every pitch I throw, I'm trying to get the guy out. Every pitch. I'm not a big believer in waste pitches. There, if, if, if there's no decision-making for the hitter, it's a wasted pitch, not a waste pitch for me. And I want to get to two strikes as fast as I can. Uh, our little mantra is on or out in three pitches. In order to do that, you have to pound the strike zone. And uh, batting average in the big leagues with two strikes, especially the year where uh, both teams had the DH was 174. So we want to get to two strikes in a hurry. And our goal is to throw two of the first three pitches for strikes. Um, Excuse me. No, I appreciate it. Um, the other stat that jumps out to me, we talk about command and location and controlling the baseball, manipulating the baseball. Um, the stat that you had, it was, you know, major league pitchers are 24% when it comes to command and accuracy. Can you, can you build that out a little bit for us? Yeah, no, I got that from inside edge and they do most of the uh, uh, baseball info solutions and inside edge are the two big data mining uh, firms that get scouting and, and baseball information, obviously, uh, 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 fan graphs and, uh, and baseball reference and those have stats too, but the inside edge people have probably more data on, uh, pitches than any organization. They've been around longer than anybody. They've got millions upon millions of, of pitches in their database. And when we say that a target hit is somewhere between hitting the target and, and maybe four inches, that 76% of the time, just with basketball, big league pitchers, the best target hitters in the world, 76% of the time, they miss their target by four or more inches. Sometimes massive misses, big misses, you know, 24, 36 inch misses, guys sitting up and in, pitchers yanking balls down on the way. And so, uh, you know, even though they are, premium target hitters, they, they, they are not perfect by any means. So scale that down for us. You know, you bring it to the professional level, you know, major league level down to the minor leagues, college baseball to high school baseball. Like, you know, how do you train? This is the question. How do you train command? How, how do you do this? And it, I, I know if there was a way you'd be a, a very wealthy guy, you'd have a million dollar answer, but in your experience, how do you create an environment to, to train the command of the baseball and, and pound the zone? Well, number one, we don't have a very good measurement for command. I mean, how do we know? We don't, we don't have, we, now we, we look at, well, he, he has X number of percent strikes and, uh, uh, and he has so many strikeouts and so many walks, you know, but that's not command, that's control. Command is hitting your target. And as yet, and it, it, I mean, you can do it if you sit down after the game and they will do it eventually. Someone will figure it out. They'll, come up with some software or, or some, some uh, IT guy's going to write up a program where they can evaluate it. I mean, if you watch a game and you know where the – and this is one of the problems. If you know where the intended location is and then see how far away from that location is, some of it is guesswork because a lot of times guys are not using the glove as a target. You know, the glove may be the starting point for the end point or it might be the end point or they may target one place with the intention of throwing in another place because their target is the knee or the shoulder or something other than the glove being a target. But if you know the game and watch it and every pitch, you could put a plus and minus on there. You could get probably a uh, quantifiable number for 
guys with good command and guys with not so good command. But as far as the training and uh, I think uh, focusing, uh, and, and this is one of the big problems I, I believe in this day. And and Rob Gray talks about it a lot in his his book is too much focus over the rubber, not enough focus over home plate. You know, I'm more concerned with where the ball is and what the ball does and what your body parts do because uh, you don't repeat movements. It just doesn't. It just doesn't happen. The best guys, when they're a little bit out of sync, they can repeat the end. The end result, like you know, you know, I get a little quick with my back hip. Well, then I'm going to compensate somewhere up the up the stream to compensate so I can be close to the right release point to get the ball to where I want it. It's not like every body part moves the same way. Your body is always adapting and adjusting to what's happening. And I think being purposeful in terms of, you know, a lot of times guys are just flipping it up there like salad and just tossing it up there or it's not purposeful enough or uh, they're too much focused on body parts where their arm is. It's too mechanically oriented and not target oriented enough. They don't practice with enough variability where throwing strikes when you're out of rhythm, throwing strikes where you're a little bit too closed or a little bit too open, creating those body moves, throwing pitches on the run, throwing pitches on the move, throwing pitches from different sides of the rubber, these types of things that the more variability that you can train with for me, and I'm just, you asked me, I'm just giving you my opinion. And the more variability you can train with, you know, instead of trying to make everyone exactly the same, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen. There's too many, too many muscle uh, nerve endings and body parts. And uh, there's too many variables involved in this process. You know, there's millions of ways that I can write my name and very rarely do I do it the same way twice, probably never. Well, you mentioned it when you were talking about, you know, uh, building hitters, you, you know, got to build a swing and then you build a hitter. And I think about that on the pitching side, right? When a, a kid only has, a player only has so many throws, you know, per day, per week, as you schedule it out, you know, so when he gets to that side or that flat ground or his bullpen, um, a lot of times the focus is mechanics, um, you know, and when you're in season, like how much mechanical work can you really do? Or is it about target practice, competing, putting those variabilities together? Well, to me, once the season starts, it's all about making pitches. And, and, and it's not just at your level. You go into a big league uh, bullpen in between starts and they're always working on their mechanics. I'm working on this. I'm working on that. And then game day, nobody cares about your mechanics. It's where, are you making pitches? Are you locating the ball? Do you have the right amount of movement? And I, I think that one of the problems, and, and, and I'm just giving you my opinion on, and it probably irritates some people, but we spend way too much time talking about their mechanics. And I'm more into, I'm more into ball flight. I'm more into making pitches as a hitter. I'm more into ball flight. I don't care where their hands and head and this and that, you know, you, you create, you create a hard hit ball on a line drive. That, that's pretty good mechanics for me. I don't care if you're standing on your head. I had a, <laughs> I had a little uh, uh, poem in, 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 uh, in Twitter today. And, and I, I got it from John Wooden. And he said, there once was a 400 hitter named Krantz who had a most unusual stance, but with a coach's correction and Krantz's perfection, he couldn't hit the seat of his pants. And so, and we're all trying to, we're all trying to clone these guys so that they all look a particular way. And they really don't. Now, they, at the point of contact, a lot of them look very similar. At the point of release, a lot of them look very similar. But they all get there on a different, a different highway, generally. Well, I think that's one of the struggles right now for coaches. Like, I, I believe there's no better time to be a baseball coach, you know, with the information that's out there. But then the, uh, the other end of that spectrum is, you know, where does it end? At what point do you, you know, your certifications and this clinic and that clinic and the professional development piece – and then you're filling the kid's head with too much stuff or the player's head with too much stuff. So how do you find that happy medium? Or is that just the art of coaching? Yeah, I think it's just feel. I think just finding out, you know, if you, if you stand back and watch and you, and you look at the end result and, you know, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm telling him what to do and he's not doing it. And then, you know, the, the old timers, well, tell him again. <laughs> tell, the, the only thing is there's a guy named Franz Bosch, who's a, 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 a Dutch, uh, uh, kinesiologist, learning specialist, and he says, "Hey, you American coaches really talk a lot." He says, "But the good thing is your athletes don't listen," and I think that that is really true. I, I would just, you know, uh, Rob Gray talks a lot about uh, Nikolai Bernstein, 
and he did his study on basically talking. It was guys, uh, they were uh, iron workers, they were hammering nails, and, and it was more about, you know, give the individual a goal and let them organize their body in the way to achieve the goal. So for me, uh, if we if we use a baseball analogy, if if a guy's top spinning a lot of balls and rolling over a lot of balls, well, you know, for me, I'm going to put him in a drill where I'm throwing fastballs inside, and I'm going to ask him to hit line drives to left field between the left fielder and the foul line that don't hook and don't have top spin, and see see how he organizes his body. Give the guy a goal, and then give him a chance to organize his body. You see young kids throwing pins and they throw one pitch every, every five minutes because the coach is in their ear, you know, talking about the mechanics and this and that and the other thing. Let, let's let them make adjustments, give them a chance. Well, and staying with pitching um, and kids making decisions and, you know, I want to go into pitch calling a bit. Um, You know, I'm, we're all over the board. We got coaches calling pitches, Catchers calling their own game at, at at all different levels. You know, I, we understand at the college level, it's their it's their job. Pack up their family at the pro level. The pitchers are going to call their own game. Obviously, there's a a variety of meetings. But you know, when designing a game plan uh, and just thinking about pitch calling in general, like, do you have any kind of pillars of pitch pitch calling you could give us? Yeah, overwhelmingly, the most important thing is to pitch to the pitcher's strength, even if it's a hitter's strength. You take a guy like Albert Pujols is the greatest fastball hitter of this generation. 50% of his outs are on fastballs. So throwing his pitch uh, outside of his solid contact zone, you get hitters out with their pitch. But again, pitching to the pitcher's strengths. You know, I'd much, there's no one right pitch. There's an option line. You know, the wrong pitch thrown with confidence is much better than the right pitch thrown with doubt. So overwhelmingly, number one, know your pitcher's strengths, pitch to the pitcher's strengths. That would be number one on my list. And then also having a philosophy that is applicable to your whole pitching staff, having a, a pitching plan. Now, you know, for me, you know, one of the things is first pitch strikes, uh, paying close attention to the one, one pitch. And that means highest percentage strike pitch to highest percentage location uh, behind box when you're behind in the count or even in the count, you know, basically I'm trying to throw the ball in a box from the middle of the thighs down to the bottom of the knees, anywhere over the plate or half box working to one side or the other of the plate. But basically what most young guys do and older guys, there was a good article uh, in fan graphs today on pitches over the middle of the plate were never more successful uh, than they were in, in 2021. Never more successful pitches over the middle of the plate in that nitro zone, four seam fastballs got hit were less successful than ever before not the pitch, but the hitters were less successful against that pitch. So for me, contact is good. We, we talk about the rule of 68 and the rule of 68 is you look in the big leagues and the on-base percentage in the big leagues is right around 320, maybe 322. So 68% of all fairly hit balls in the big leagues are outs. So I, I tell the pitchers, I said, Hey, you know, do, do you gamble? Well, yeah. ever been to a casino? Well, yeah. I said, who wins the house? Okay. And you're, you're the house. When you're pitching, you're the house. Overwhelmingly, you force contact, you've got the, you got a better chance than the hitter does. Well, it's a great segue. The rule of 68 always sticks out to me. I put that in our notes. I'm glad you went there. Um, but you know, when you're coming to the clinic and you got a couple different sessions that you're speaking on, but you know, in the catching community, again, you talk about catcher con and very active and the stuff you post is mostly catching related. So um, maybe just give us a preview of of the session, you know, kind of new age catching and um, you know what should we be looking for? Yeah, it's a it's a hundred percent receiving, and the reason it's a hundred percent receiving because uh, over the course of a season, you're going to well, there's going to be probably catching 120 games now, on on average. There's 147 pitches thrown in a game by each team, so that's 292 pitches. Of those 292 pitches, uh, 40% of them are going to be a ball's width inside. And this is, in the, this is in, in the big leagues. A ball's width inside the strike zone or a ball's width outside the strike zone. Of those 40%, 20% of them are not going to be hit. So over the course of a season or course of a game, we're talking about 
20%, which is like 29 pitches. So 29 pitches are what I call straballs. Could be a strike, could be a ball. Uh, a baseball savant calls them shadow pitches. And the guys that are better at those pitches, by and, and every, every pitch is, has a little different run value because of the count. Like a 3-2 count, if you take a close pitch and it becomes a ball or it becomes a strike, the difference is over a half a run. Now, over the course of a season where you're, we're talking about 5,000 pitches, okay, if there were 5,000 3-2 pitches, that, that would translate into a lot of runs. Now, when you save uh, in, in, in professional baseball in the big leagues, somewhere between 8 and 10 runs equals a big league win. So like the, the top guys last year uh, were like, uh, it was low last year because the catching coaches, are, the, the, the difference between the average guy and the big, the best guy who was Rail Muto was only 13. Normally it's in the 25, 26. One year it was 42 with LaCroix. That translates 42 runs saved above average is about six wins. So with, Jonathan LaCroix catching in 2011, just by virtue of the way he caught the ball, his team won six more games than the average guy. Than the average guy. Now, there's some guys that are minus runs. They lose runs because of the way they catch. You know, they're hopefully they're better offensively. But it's subtle. But with the, the data people right now and the analytics guy, they're, they're showing us how important the receiving – piece is because uh, there's just so many pitches. Uh, they did a, uh, I think it was baseball, uh, I'm not sure who it was, baseball reference rated uh, defensive war, wins above replacement by position. And the catchers were number one by five runs over the shortstop. Why? Because they're just touching so many more pitches on a daily basis, not to, not to even talk about their blocking, throwing, uh, game management skills, but if you look at blocking, it's the difference between the average guy and the best guy is only about a run. Throwing is about uh, a little over four runs, and and saving 26, 27 is like, you know, seven times more important. So you see these guys that you know uh, that can really catch and save runs, getting jobs on a daily basis, and they're looking at at receiving. And now the, the professional guys are really paying attention to it. I know, you know, as a minor league coach, we spend probably three or four more times more uh, time working with receiving than any other of the skills other than, and maybe game management, you know, more than blocking, more than throwing, but we, we spend a lot of time on it. And that's what my talk is going to be. It's going to be talking about receiving and drills and the, 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 the numbers behind uh, the importance of, being a good receiver. Now, there are a lot of what you, they call themselves purists, and they don't like to see catchers move the ball. Well, that's okay. Don't move the ball. But I'll tell you, if my guy moves the ball and yours doesn't, and we're close in ability teams, we're going to win because we're going to get more strikes and we're going to get more outs. We're going to give up fewer runs because of that. Well, that was the question I was going to is, you know, I mean, everybody wants to talk about setups and what your feet do and knees and maybe we'll get there. But just the hands, I feel like the 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 hand placement, you know, the old steering wheel. Now we're looking at a horizontal glove moving the baseball versus sticking the baseball extension deflection, like and everything in between. So, you know, at least when you know we watch professional baseball on TV, right, like we're seeing the catchers moving the ball, like you said, the purest is is cringing at that. So why are they moving the ball so much or ball moving them, however they want to uh, define it? No, I, I would say they're moving the ball. You know why they're moving the ball? Because they're getting rewarded by moving the ball. And I don't think the umpires see the glove where it moves. They see where it stops. I think there's a, a saccade in there with the umpire's vision and they don't see it. And the guys that move the ball most efficiently with a kind of a one piece move, whether you, and I'm in, not into any one technique. I don't, care if you're on a knee on both knees a kickstand modified kickstand sprinter stance in a traditional two-point stance I don't care if you flex it or leverage it stick it out in front and move it uh, you know I think there's a lot of there's a wide bandwidth for what works and everybody's individualized and that's the one thing that's really important adapt to the individual differences of the player 
find out what they can do and what they're good at instead of trying to to mold them into what you think is the way to do it uh but uh the the fact of the matter is guys that move the ball get more strikes i mean if, if the numbers don't lie right it, it doesn't matter what anybody's opinion is if you got the data and the video to show it then i don't care yeah i don't care what it looks like it's it's not about it's not about the it's it's about the results it's not about the movement pattern so that pitch, you know, that rare pitch, right? Even at the lower levels, that rare pitch that hits the target, right? Or he's, you know, it's right down the middle. Do you still advise him to move that just to show consistency, just to kind of bring it to his sternum? Is that the coaching point there? Well, I'm, if he if he's a flexor, but I believe that you move every pitch a little bit. Some pitches you have to move more because of where they are located. Because I, I, as a, I don't want the umpire. Uh, only to see me move balls or extra balls or close pitches. You know, I move everything just a little bit. And of all the catching stuff I've heard, you know, where the glove ends up that, that to me, that sticks the most about, you know, the, the purpose of, of moving it besides, you know, it works. I think that that last coaching point is huge. Um, you, you talked about different setups, um, you know, like at what age would you, suggest starting to tinker with different setups, right? Every kid's, most kids are going to come in your traditional two point stance. Um, at what point do you start experimenting or, or is that something for, for a, you know, a, a college coach or above or. Um, well, you know, you, say, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I'd, I'd start all the young guys on a knee. When a kid's first starting out, those little guys where the glove is heavier than they are and they have no balance whatsoever and no stability and, and I think it's a lot easier for them to learn how to catch the ball when they're stabilized and when they're in more of a vertical back position with their head up and uh, where they're not struggling and, and to just to hold their stance. And I'd start there. But I, I don't know that there's I don't know that you can put a number on it. But I, I know for our guys, we ask them to experiment with every possible stance, right knee down, left knee down, two point, just a traditional stance, two point with a little bit of an angle right knee down with a little bit of a modified kickstand or a full kickstand, left knee down with a modified kickstand or full kickstand, sprinter stance, and work on blocking, throwing, and receiving from all their stances. And then try and find one stance that works best for everything. And if not, evaluate the situation. What's the priority here? Well, I got a runner on third, and this guy's going to spike a lot of breaking balls, and I better be in my best blocking stance. Or it's a running situation. And I know he's going to run here. I better be in my best throwing stance or it's a receiving. This is an important pitch. I'm going to be in my best receiving stance. So you can have multiple tools in your toolkit, or you can have one Swiss army knife that kind of works for everything. All right. Love that. Now we've gone most of this episode without talking any offensive baseball. So your, your second session is kind of titled new age hitting. So kind of give us a preview of, of what new age hitting looks like in, in your opinion. Well, again, we're getting back to ball flight. We're getting back to, I spent a lot of time talking about timing and how to create timing and create space for timing because the swing is somewhat secondary. You know, a, a great swing with bad timing. If you're early or late, you're probably, you're probably out. And a, a bad swing that you're on time that you can hit on the fat part of the bat, you probably have a chance. And so timing is a big piece spent a lot of time talking about vision and loading and uh, visual strategies and uh, rhythm, balance, rhythm, and timing. Those really three factors. Uh, also creating, uh, creating uh, bat speed uh, is important. And in order to accelerate, you have to be able to put the brakes on almost like the brakes or the accelerator in the swing and learning how to decelerate and transfer uh, transfer uh, up the kinetic chain so that you get maximum bat speed and also finding a way to create a uh, bat plane where the plane of the swing ma uh, matches the plane of the pitch and getting into that pitch plane as early as possible. Uh, spent a lot of time talking about eye, head and eye discipline and, and a strategy and then drills to do all those things and uh, hitting with two strikes. I think that that's really bad in today's game. And I think that we need to spend time not only 
uh, talking about it mechanically, but but also from a strategy standpoint, and then spending time in practice, hitting with two strikes. Whether you don't change anything other than uh, the part of the ballpark you're trying to attack, so you can see the ball a little bit longer and get more information, or maybe you go into a physical, make a physical change in terms of wider base and uh, a more uh, compressed stance and kind of a uh, a uh, uh, Beau Bichette heel up, heel down with less than two strikes and or, or with two strikes and kind of a leg kick with two strikes or when do you go into your two-strike two approach? Hey, there are times where you have to start the at-bat off in a two-strike approach because Randy Johnson's pitching and I'm a left-hander and I got no chance. My only chance is to battle him from a two-strike mode from, from jump street. So just philosophically but mechanically too and and not get too tied up into mechanics because, I, you know, again, I want – I want their their focus on ball flight, not not so much in the batter's box where my hands feet and whatever. And again, back to that Nikolai Bernstein, give them a goal and let's see how they organize their body. Big fan of uh, backwards engineering a swing rather than designing a swing for a guy. See what his swing looks like against high velocity or breaking balls and, and then look back. And when he has hard contact and creates the right type of ball flight, what did he do mechanically? What did he do? Well, maybe that's what we're looking for rather than trying to give him pre-pitch mechanics that may or may not work. Well, one thing you made me think of there as you were talking about, you know, facing Randy Johnson, that lefty on lefty is, you know, when baseball starts in the spring all over the country, I mean, the weather's going to change, right? The weather changes throughout the year, especially, you know, in the north up here, it's it's, it's darn near snowing. You know, it, pitchers are dominating the game, right? Ball, not many balls are leaving the yard, um, game is a little bit slower as the weather improves. Balls are going to fly a little bit more. Um, but as you're facing that tough pitcher, right, we're trying to generate offense. So when you think about generating offense, um, yeah, obviously hitting is a piece of it. What other pieces come to mind? Well, uh, strike zone discipline is, a, you know, a walk is an offensive weapon. And, you know, it, it sounds really simple, you know, swing at strikes and take balls. But I think that we don't do that all the time. 40% of the the chases are with two strikes. I think that is, is a problem for me. Uh, learning how to, you know, utilize the middle part of the ballpark, you know, and having an attack plan for the middle of the ballpark or even the off gap, uh, especially in wet, cold conditions, the short game, especially at the high school level and the college level or any level when it's, I mean, when, when it's cold and it's wet and it's windy, it's not, it's not easy to field and it's not easy to field bunts on the run and things like that. So I'm going to spend some time, you know, and I want to complete, I want every player in my batting order. I want a, a real long batting order relative to ability. I want my nine guy to be able to, to uh, be productive. And, and I want nine, nine number three hitters. They got to be able to hit. They got to be able to hit for extra bases. They got to be able to drive runs, advance runners, got to be able to bunt, hit, and run. They got to have a, a toolkit of things, of, of options they can use based on that particular day and the matchup or the weather or whatever it happens to be that is going to give me the best chance to, to help my team win on that day. It made me think of another question for you. And, you know, I saw you down in Chicago at the ABCA, and one of the topics that came up in the presentations was just the construction of your lineup, right? And obviously at the pro level, there's a lot more home runs and strikeouts and but, you know, kind of what we're starting to see is a, is a philosophical change in how to structure the lineup, right? It used to be the, right, the, the fast guy leading off, and then the lefty hitting two to get him over, open up the right side, and your cleanup hitter hitting four. And all of a sudden, now you start to see organizations and teams do different things. So when you think about the construction of a batting, batting order, um, what comes to mind? Well, it's a, it's a lot different on the professional level because now just based on data, we know that our best guy is going to probably hit second and our next best guy is going to hit fourth and the next guy is going to hit third. And it always used to be the number three hitter was the best guy. And then the on-base guy is a, is a, is a number one guy. And especially if he can steal bases and maybe you don't hit your, your worst hitter in number nine, but uh, on a, I, I guess, I, I guess it, uh, there's not one answer. A lot of it depends. I think for me on the amateur level, you know, I want my best hitters, to hit as much as they can. I want them right bunched together at the top of the order and, and, uh, and, uh, and 
you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm going to go left, right. So that I don't, uh, uh, I don't give a guy a chance to get a feel for say a slider down and away. That's really effective against this right-hander, but now it's down and into a left-hander and maybe in his wheelhouse. So those are some of the things I think about, but in, in general, you know, that on-base percentage guys that can hand the baton to the next guy. Uh, I like to have those guys stacked together, handing, handing the baton off to one another. I appreciate that. So I, I got a couple more for you. And this question, I got to give Jonathan Gellner a, uh, a shout out here because this is stolen from him. It's, it's like, what, what is something in, you might have a lot of things. What's something that you believe in that others would disagree with you on, you know, where you're the minority in the baseball community, either it's baseball skill, it's philosophy, it's leadership. Like, what do you believe in that others would disagree with you on? Well, uh, <laughs> I had one the other day. You know, I put, I threw a situation out there. Uh, I've got, uh, uh, let's say in a nine inning game and it's the sixth inning and I got a three run lead and there's one out to runner on third base and there's a weak hitter up there. I got a really good matchup with the, the pitcher uh, and maybe the pitcher's hitting or, or whatever. And I got a ground ball pitcher and, you know, there are times where based on that matchup, I'm going to, I might play the infield in and, a hundred percent of the people feel like, oh no, you never play the infield in that's hey, if I told you that you weren't gonna score the run a hundred percent of the time based on this matchup, you can play the infield in. And if you play the infield back, and the reality is that by not giving up the run in that situation improves your chances of winning a game up to ninety-one percent. And if you uh and if you play the infield back and give them a run the chances of winning the game are 86%. Now over the course of a short season probably doesn't mean, doesn't mean much. The other thing for me, I'm a big go after them. Oh, two. And if they get a hit, they get a hit, you know, but I'm going to go after them and I'm going to try and get this guy out on or out in three pitches. I'm going to make a quality pitch. Oh, two. I'm not going to throw that 55 foot curveball or that 10 foot chain link ball and then lose my release point. And the next thing I know I'm three and two and I've walked the guy because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get that guy out with every pitch. Now, maybe I'm going to stri- stretch the strike zone a little bit to get him to chase because it's a pitch around situation, but I'm still trying to get that guy out. If you're not, go ahead and walk him then, you know, but I want to, I want to get that guy out. And, uh, uh, and what happens, you know, a lot of, we, there's a lot of hypocrisy at, uh, uh, tied into our game. You know, we may talk that way and then all of a sudden a guy gets a hit on O2 and then, oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, not that good. Well, I wasn't trying to make that pitch, you know, obviously. But, again, you got to practice making put away two-strike pitches and pitch around situations. And, you know, bad stuff happens, and you just got to move on. And, and uh, you know, there's an old military saying, forget it, drive on, Fido. And that, that really applies to baseball because all good intentions, and we're trying to do things one way, and it always does, it doesn't come out you know, stuff happens, bad stuff happens. You got to deal with it. And if you dwell on it and, you know, I'm, I'm big, big in, in, in positives, you know, and the more positive you can be, the better the hearing of the players become. And, and I'm trying to coach, I'm trying to coach caution out of my players, not caution into my players. And so I want, I want that aggressiveness and they're going to make mistakes and you got to support them, whether they have good outcome or bad outcome. Otherwise they'll be afraid to do anything. They'll be paralyzed. There's so much fear of failure. Uh, it's a, it, they become bad players when they should be good players. Well, now you got, now I got more for you. So the fear of failure, that mindset and, and the mental game, you know, how do you strategically work that in with your players, right? Every coach talks about how we're going to work on the mental game this year, and then it gets squeezed out, right? So how do you work the mental game in? How do you build that, that aggressive mindset, you know, act as if you can't fail? Well, I mean, as soon as you turn the, the scoreboard on, you, you know, you got to be consistent. If you say, you, you know, you got to, you talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. And then, and that's the coach's body language. And it's also like one of the, for me, I'll give you an example, like base running. we got these base running rules. Okay. And the rules are never be the first or third out at third base, never be the first out at home plate. Okay. Well, you know, to me, that's, coaching caution into players. How's a guy going to know? Well, if you tell them that they'll all stop at second base, they'll never go to third base. 
And so how did how do they find out whether they should go or not unless they go and 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 get thrown out on occasion or they're safe and then that gives them more information in their in their database in their file cabinet so the next time they can make better decisions. And uh, so that's one of one of the examples. And I just you know as coaches I just think we have to be be aware of our body language when bad things happen. How do you react to that situation? Yeah, no, and I think that's a big thing, right? I, I mean, I'm a believer that the the players, the team takes on the personality of their coach. You know, you mentioned earlier that even keel, not too high, not too low, just that steady hand because the swings of this game, pitch to pitch, you know, riding that wave is is it's unsustainable. Would you agree with that? That the players take on the, you know, mentality of the coach a little bit. No doubt. One of one of my greatest friends and mentors was Ken Revisa and. You know, controlling the controllables, breathing, checking in, you know, where are you, being where you need to be. You know, nothing happens to you stepping the batter's backs or stepping the mound. The game's not going to not going to speed you up. And so being where you need to be, being in control of yourself, uh, controlling the controllables and dealing with adversity, having a way to restart, reset, uh, having some type of physical release or mental release where you can reset and, and be ready to be as good as you are on this particular pitch. We appreciate that. Well, Jerry, I've kept you over an hour here. I know it goes fast, but um, give us, give us some, some parting advice, you know, kind of looking ahead to the season. You know, we all want to have our best season possible as coaches and players at every level. Um, give us some advice for coaches and I'm just going to turn the mic off and let you end this thing. Well, I, I, I really, uh, I, I had a chance to talk uh, at the uh, Lefty Gomez Award Ceremony, and I left the audience with three things that I think are important as coaches, and it doesn't have anything to do, not going to help you win the games. It's not going to help you make your players any better necessarily. Uh, but I said, pay it forward. We all got to where we are on the shoulders of others, so pay it forward so the other guys can climb up on your shoulders keep handing the baton off to the next guy and then keep making deposits instead of withdrawals. And uh, I think that applies to us as coaches, but us as, uh, as human beings in, in any, any uh, thing that we do. And there it is. Huge thank you goes out to Jerry for sitting down with us today. Um, you know, we connected from different time zones and he was flexible with his scheduling and was able to just give as much time as we wanted. And I was truly grateful for that. I know the coaches who hear this are going to love it. Um, again, give him a follow on Twitter, his content. He's got books. He's got his own website. Um, just so many phenomenal lessons coming out of this today's episode. And hopefully one is continuous learning. I mean, when you look at Jerry's resume, he could put it on a table and say, do what I tell you to do. This is the way we've always done it. And it works. It worked at this level, at this level, with this athlete, with that athlete. But he's always challenging himself. He's always looking for what is the best answer and why, what do the best do and why do they do it that way. All right, looking ahead, uh, middle of February, Jerry's in Wisconsin. He's in Madison for our uh, Wisconsin State Baseball Coaches Clinic. Um, really excited to have him in town for two sessions. And if you get a chance to go up to him, introduce yourself, uh, it, it's just phenomenal. He was so gracious with his time. And, you know, I, I hope I'm Jerry one day. I'll put it that way. I hope, you know, my future career that I, I can even do a fraction of what Jerry does for the game. You know, he mentioned it at the end. He's constantly, constantly, you know, making deposits and making deposits. And I love that analogy because that's what he does. I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a high school coach in Wisconsin. I'm very low on that totem pole. And he's willing to jump on a Zoom call, take hours out of his day for this. Uh, it just shows you the know how humble and how grateful and willing he is to give back to the game that's given him so much so um, remember to subscribe and share and please pass these along to anyone who may be interested and until next episode have a great rest of your day